The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and also to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we talk to Missy McMullen, design engineer at Lane Supply, about barrier cables and parking garages, what they are, how they work, and how they can benefit the industry as we know it. I'm your co-host, Matt Cardle. I'm a licensed engineer at DCI Engineers, practicing on structural projects in California with an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's in structural engineering from UC San Diego. And I'm your co-host, Alexis Clark. Work in Hilti's North American headquarters as the product manager for chemical anchoring portfolio in the US and Canada. I'm a licensed professional engineer in Texas. I received my bachelor's in civil engineering from UT Austin, and I'm currently an MBA candidate at Auburn. All right, before we introduce our guests, we would like to let you know that the Engineering Management Institute recently launched another podcast, the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, which can be found at geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com. This podcast will be focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. The host is award-winning geotechnical leader, Jared Green, a licensed professional engineer who has been practicing as a geotechnical engineer for nearly 20 years. You can find all the episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast, and you can request uh, guest and topic ideas at geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com. Now I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode. Missy McMullen is a structural engineer who lives in Fort Worth, Texas. She earned both her bachelor and master's in civil engineering from South Dakota State University before moving to the DFW area or Dallas-Fort Worth area in 2014. She gained five years of experience with structural technologies or VSL, working on the contracting side as a project engineer. And she has spent the past year and a half working as a design engineer for Lane Supply, a canopy design and construction firm in Arlington, Texas. In her spare time, she enjoys spending time with her cat, crafting with friends, hula hooping, and fire breathing. Yes, that's fire breathing. I think, Matt, we're going to have to ask her more about that one. Now, let's jump into our conversation with Missy. Welcome to the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. We're so glad to have you here with us today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I am personally very invested in you being here because, of course, you and I have worked together in the past. But something I find so unique about the structural engineering industry is that to any layperson who may hear the word structural engineer, they pretty much automatically think about buildings and bridges. And the role of the structural engineer in designing structures that protect the safety of the users of the building or the user of whatever piece of structure it is is not limited by any means to just those two things. So I'm really glad that our listeners are getting to know a little bit more about what other alternative types of structural engineering are that are just as important to the safety of the public as a building that stands or a bridge that doesn't fall. Absolutely. All parts of it are important and there's a lot that people don't realize goes into it. 
Exactly. So you are a design engineer and you're responsible for designing the structural components of various different types of designs. And I believe that you're currently designing structural canopies um, for different types of smaller structures. Can you tell us a little bit more specifically about what you work on these days? And if you want to share with us a little bit more about your past and how you got here. So I've been with my current company, Lane Supply, for about a year and a half now. Um, It's my first design engineer position. Um, The previous position that I was in with my last company was more a project engineer on the contracting side of things. So it's been a wonderful learning experience to start working with building codes more often, to start working with uh, local loads of specific geographic areas when you're determining what capacities your structure needs to withstand. The types of canopies that I design currently are typically for gas stations or fast food restaurants for their drive-throughs. Um, we're all familiar with Chick-fil-A and there are many, many canopies and there are many, many restaurants they have throughout the United States. And they have sort of been the leader for implementing that type of structural canopy for your fast food restaurant because it provides uh, more comfort and better working conditions for your staff as well as for the patrons that are moving through the restaurant drive through So that's more or less what I do. A lot of gas station canopies and a lot of fast food restaurant canopies. The design and construction is pretty straightforward, pretty simplistic, and it's uh, pretty much the bread and butter of what you would expect a structural engineer to do. Missy, I know you had some experience with barrier cables in, in parking garages, correct? Yes, that's correct. I'm pretty curious about that, too, because I've done some parking garages and uh, looked at some barrier cables. For our listeners that aren't too familiar with these types of cables, can you uh, tell them about uh, what the different types of materials they encompass, when you might use them, and what type of barrier cable systems are they're out there? The various types of barrier cables that you see um, when you're driving through the Metroplex or you're driving past a parking garage, are they typically look like metal strands that run around the perimeter of each open floor that doesn't have any walls on your parking garage. The reason for barrier cables and why they can be a lot more cost efficient than other types of barriers is because other barriers are made of more expensive material. If you see parking garages that have concrete barrier walls around the whole perimeter, it is incredibly sound. It has a very high amount of capacity for impact, especially depending on how you reinforce it. But the material cost goes through the roof when you have to take into account that much additional formwork, that much additional concrete cost, and the materials that go into it. That's why you are seeing a lot of entities move towards structural steel barrier cable systems for the perimeter of their parking garage structures as opposed to uh, fully poured concrete barrier walls. I work particularly in the West Coast and yes, even I'm thinking about the weight too. If you have a whole bunch of concrete exterior walls, that'll contribute to the seismic weight. So it makes sense on why steel would be a more economical option for that. Absolutely. And in addition to that, you uh, have the ability to change the barrier cable system as codes get updated over time, uh, which may be something that would be a little bit more complex if you all of a sudden needed to raise the height of your concrete wall around the entire perimeter, as opposed to removing the structural steel barrier cable system that you currently have in place and uh, retrofitting the building with an updated version. That is such a good point. And I think as many of us are starting to transition our mindset of I'm designing a building for now and starting to think about the longevity of the materials that we're working with and of the structure itself, 
these kind of ideas and these kind of thoughts are going to be more and more prevalent and so important to the design considerations we make at the beginning. Yes, and that longevity of material brings up another point that you asked about the type of materials that are used for these barrier cable systems. And typically, you will see a very high strength, low relaxation, seven wire steel that is used for something called post tensioning or pre tensioning. Uh, you see this application a lot in stay cable bridges with the, the stays that hold up the, the deck of the bridge itself. But what we can do to help the longevity of this higher strength, low relaxation steel is to galvanize it. So by galvanizing the complete outer surface of the strand, you are providing a very long lifetime with uh, next to no corrosion over the course of um, the performance of the barrier cable. Just kind of to get a little bit of history, I mean, can you give us a little bit of information about how barrier cables came about? how they've been used by engineers. Um, I'm not even familiar with the codes that you would be referencing. Give us a crash course. I'm ready. The use of barrier cable um, began around the 1960s, but the popularity and increased use of barrier cables started to ramp up in the 1990s when DOTs across the United States started implementing them along the sides of highways as well. So you'll see when you're going on the interstate and you're going under an overpass that there will be protective barrier cables alongside the median. And essentially, so that's if you accidentally run off the road, you are steered back onto the road and you don't directly impact a concrete column and uh, put your safety at risk as well as the safety of the structure that you're driving under. Um, so when DOTs started implementing the use of barrier cable, it became a lot more popular overall, especially in parking garages. The codes that you reference in order to design barrier cable is um, what you would expect for most other structures. It's the International Building Code. There is a specific section in the International Building Code that details what forces a barrier cable system needs to withstand from vehicular impact. And that's another important point to bring up is that not all barrier cable systems that you see are rated for vehicular impact. Some of them are just for pedestrian protection only to prevent a child from being able to climb through or a person falling off of an elevated edge on a structure. And so that's where some of the improvements to the code came through over time. Uh, if you see older parking garages uh, around the area where you live, they may have seven cables that run the perimeter of each floor, leaving, I believe it was about an eight-inch gap where they used to be at. But this allowed for too big of a risk for children to be able to climb through or uh, body parts to be able to be caught or uh, any number of safety risks that were still posed, even with the eight-inch spacing. So at that point, you saw an improvement to an 11-strand system that runs the perimeter four inches on center, where the top cable sits at 42 inches above the concrete slab. And that can both protect against vehicular impact as well as pedestrian protection walking around the structure itself. You mentioned the loads. I'm imagining that's got to be a lot of load, right? Like, where do you even start? Are there specific code sections or do you need to do a more in-depth analysis on what that impact is to those cables and what type of cars are you doing trucks to? That's, I'm wondering about that too. Within the International Building Code, there is a section that addresses vehicular impact specifically. And to be able to withstand 5,000 pounds of force moving at five miles per hour over a 12 inch by 12 inch area that is centered 
uh, I believe it's two feet, eight inches off of the ground. It might be two feet off of the ground. It's been a minute since I've done this, but essentially that 5,000 pound force moving at five miles an hour is supposed to replicate a car that is not properly braking when they're approaching the barrier cable. Um, and so oftentimes you will see that there is a portion of four to five cables across the middle of the design that are stressed and rated for a higher power because this is the portion of the barrier cable system that is intended to resist vehicle impact. But obviously not all of the strands need to because not all of them are at an impactful height to a vehicle. I'm wondering, there has to be a really big factor of safety on this because there's so many situations where we've heard stories of that one person who thinks they're hitting the brake and instead hits the gas. Unfortunately, we have to consider a certain level of a factor of stupid, but how do you even try and design for these accidents that happen? Do you have the ability to do that? Well, unfortunately, you can't design for every circumstance and every scenario. Um, Every now and then you will find someone who accidentally full on puts the accelerator to the floor when they think that they are full on pressing on the brake. In my opinion, based on the way that the code is written, no barrier cable system out there, even installed to code, would be able to resist an an outlier force like that. Uh, But to design everything to withstand that 5,000 pound force moving forwards at five miles an hour, I believe protects the majority of situations where you would see a vehicle impacting the cable. And something that you said reminded me that part of the code update from the seven-strand system to the 11-strand system also included applying that force of 5,000 pounds at five miles per hour at two different areas, one down lower and one up higher. And that one up higher is supposed to represent the increasing use of trucks throughout our community and then throughout our country. It reminds me of a picture I saw of, yeah, it was a parking garage and I think like what you just said, someone stepped on the gas when they were supposed to step on the brakes, but their car was dangling pretty much halfway through the parking edge of the parking structure. And the only thing that was keeping that truck or that car from completely falling over were those cables that were, you know, stretched out and, and yielded and barely just hanging on there. So <laughs> definitely a, a reasoning for that. I remember hearing about that story was a parking garage out of Austin, Texas, and uh, there was one car, you're correct, that drove through the cables and ended up caught up in the cables with the the tires or the wheel well or something like that. And because of that, it stayed suspended and it didn't fall to the ground. However, that garage, even after having um, code evaluations for their garage, had not implemented an updated barrier cable system. And so just a few short months later, unfortunately, someone drove completely off of the seventh floor and crashed down to the ground. There's that factor of safety, but like with that event, it's so extreme that the code can't capture everything. Same thing with, you know, our general code of standard. What's reasonable, like in a, at a reasonable load? Absolutely. And there's a lot of things that go into it. There's the 5,000 pounds at five miles per hour. There is the distance that you are allowed to place your barrier cable system away from the edge of your concrete slab. And they um, place those limits in order to approximate how far it is from the bumper to the front axle of your vehicle. Um, Because if the cable can deflect too far outwards and then your wheels are already off of the concrete edge before the cables have flexed, to their capacity, then your car can still fall off anyway, even with the cables not reaching force. So there's a lot that goes into it. It's the force that's applied to the cables, as well as the proximity of the cables to the leading edge of the structure. 
we're able to reference and kind of think about the changing factors that we have from one project to another or one geography to another based on the USGS geological survey information about the soils, um, you know, what, how we expect them to interact. You mentioned that there's two different heights at which you apply these forces based on the type of vehicles you expect to be using that parking structure. But I mean, how often does that information get updated? Do they have a, a recently, you know, a good survey about how many more trucks are, are likely to be used in Texas, for example, rather than California? And does that have, is there any kind of regional differences in barrier cable design? I'm not familiar with any regional differences as far as the frequency of what type of vehicle is used or uh, what force would be impacted and then what at location above the slab. But I can tell you that from my experience, I did barrier cable installations um, in Texas. I've done barrier cable installations in Seattle, and I've also uh, surveyed barrier cable potential installations in Colorado. And for our company specifically, our designs did not vary significantly from one state to the next, no matter if you were in a high seismic region versus a high snow region versus a high wind region. It's interesting that you're taking maybe less environmental factors into play, but of course the the use cases are going to be so different in comparison to a typical structure, uh, like a building design. I think it's really interesting that you bring that up and uh, it makes me wonder and makes me want to look into whether or not there have been studies completed for specific geographic areas requiring a specific barrier cable design. Uh, That's definitely something I want to look into now. Missy, can you get into uh, retrofitting of existing uh, parking garages? I'm assuming parking structures would also have uh, retrofits for barrier cables, right? Like, is that something that's common and that you work with also? Yes, that was actually much more common in my line of work uh, with my last company than brand new parking garage construction with brand new barrier cable implementation was. It was actually much more common for uh, existing parking garages to reach out to us for quotes on what it would cost us to implement an up-to-code barrier cable system in their already existing garage. And that did pose several challenges to us throughout the time that I was working at that company. Um, One of the major things that you run into is that if you don't have proper as-built design drawings for a structure, then you cannot get a good idea of what capacity the existing concrete can withstand for the terminations of your barrier cable structure. Um, Because the way that barrier cable functions, a car runs into your cables, the cables elongate, and they get put into tension. And then the termination forces are anchored into the concrete. And so the concrete needs to be able to resist all of that concrete breakout force. And if you're an engineer and you deal with embedment or dowling or anything like that, you all know that it is much, much easier to precast something than to post-install something. Um, so a lot of what we dealt with was post-installation of anchors using um, epoxy and uh, has rods and all that sort of thing in existing concrete structures. So on top of the challenge where you needed to know the existing rebar, you needed to know the existing dimensions of the concrete, the 28-day strength of the concrete, all this information you need in order to be able to properly design a barrier cable termination with post-installed anchors. However, 
what steps up the difficulty even more so is when your uh, garage has existing post tensioning running through the slab and sometimes the columns, uh, because depending on where you want to anchor in your termination for your barrier cables, whether it's with a structural steel kicker post that's anchored into the slab or whether it's um, a vertical piece of steel that is anchored into the concrete column, if you have post tensioning in place, it becomes a much, much riskier and much more potentially expensive process in order to figure out where you have enough clearance to drill for your post-installed anchor. If you have the unfortunate circumstance of hitting post-tensioning that you didn't know was in a concrete structure, uh, the repair costs really start to skyrocket at that point. I think we have a lot of listeners who are used to dealing with post-tensioned any kind of element and they all just kind of groaned a little bit if you've had that experience or have have had to go through that pain before. (laughs) I had a full-on crash course in uh, GPR, uh, ground penetrating radar, when I started with the company um, because we had um, a Hilti scanner that would scan right through the concrete. Um, We'd be able to create 3D images of what that rebar and post-tensioning looked like in the concrete, but getting a read that was reliable enough and made you feel confident enough to stick a drill bit against a concrete slab and know without a reasonable doubt that you're not going to be hitting post-tensioning, that was a really, really difficult, perfect storm to try and generate sometimes. Absolutely. And no one wants to be the person to sign off to say, yeah, drill here. That sounds great. And then have to pick up the tab at the end of the day. (laughs) Most definitely. You hit the nail on the head. You find out that the columns, the concrete isn't strong enough to withstand the forces. Was there a solution that you would go to? So such as, okay, if the concrete columns don't work, maybe we'll just add a steel post or something. Is that kind of your your go-to for those types of situations? There are some mitigating factors that you can implement into your design when you don't feel like you can confidently rely on the capacity of your concrete column or slab. And oftentimes that includes either deepening the embedment if you can, going to a full through penetration if you can, or adding additional connection points to the structure that spreads out the overall pullout force that the concrete is experiencing. So an example of this would be, say you have an 18 inch wide square column, 18 inches by 18 inches, and you know that you need to embed your rod at least 18 inches in sound concrete. Now, you know that's not possible because you can't get proper cover on the end of your anchor, and your pullout cone would probably be wider than the 18-inch concrete faces to begin with. So at that point, you would consider a situation where you have a flat plate against one column a flat plate against the other side of the column and you drill your all threads completely through and then you have nuts that can bear on the outside of the concrete column and you have through full capacity for the concrete to absorb the impact uh, if a vehicle were to impact the cables. Another instance would be where if you have a post that's bolted through the concrete slab at the bottom and that's terminating all your cables. But if you don't have enough capacity for your post and the concrete itself to resist the impact, you could run your post instead the entire way to the ceiling and both through the ceiling as well as through the floor of whichever floor you are protecting for barrier cable. You would want to fill that rest of that void uh, and the annular gap around that all thread with adhesive, right? Indeed, absolutely you would. Hilti was a very, very popular customer of ours at my last position. (laughs) One of the reasons I love being on this podcast and getting this opportunity to meet with different individuals is 
it almost never comes back to regular work. I kind of just get to get sucked into the structural engineering aspect that's outside of my little adhesive anchoring bubble. And so when you brought this up, I was thinking, man, I feel like I just talked about this this morning, but it's fun. We would end up ordering case after case of Hilti epoxy when we would land a contract that gave us five levels of barrier cable throughout a garage and sometimes multiple garages on the same campus of a university. So when you're talking about ramping up the scope of your project that much, uh, yes, Hilti was an incredible resource for us to have. I'm glad to hear it. I, that's one of the reasons I actually was glad to have you on here as well is because I think you and I had, of all the people that I was working with as a field engineer and supporting these different design engineers in their different design configurations, you continuously brought me some of the more interesting and complex and congested pieces of concrete to have to uh, anchor into. And I, I think it was always so interesting and I learned something every single time I got to work with you, which is one of the reasons I, I find your line of, of structural engineering just so fascinating is it's so much of it is outside of the typical designs that we'd see or that we would try and model. And I remember you and I, you know, kind of batting around, how can I model this in Profis? Because I can't make this work and I don't have the ability to do X, Y, or Z. And I think it's so fascinating to see this very, very different side to structural engineering. On that note, I do have a question for you. I like to think of myself as kind of an alternative structural engineer. You know, I don't design bridges and buildings and neither do you. And Matt and the majority of structural engineers are used to that kind of career path. It's pretty well laid out. We're starting to see some more creativity and flexibility with roles and career development, but you work currently for a supplier and you used to work on the contracting side. And I'd love to get a little perspective from you for some of our audience members who are either young engineers or engineers in college who don't necessarily know um, what all the breadth of opportunity is out there for them, or for someone who's even in their career who's thinking, you know, maybe I could use a little bit of a change. What is it about your career that's been either really different or, or really beneficial that you think kind of gives you different opportunities than the standard design engineer? One of the things I'm the most grateful for in the path that my career has taken so far and in uh, the jobs that I have had the good fortune to uh, be employed at is that when I was in school and in college, I had a one-track brain. I had tunnel vision, and I was totally convinced that I was going to be a bridge designer. Bridge design is what I would do day in, day out for years and years, and then I would retire happy. And I remember one of my college professors telling me that you don't need to have expectations about where you're going to be 20 years from now. When you go into the field of engineering, you realize that the number of doors that can open for you are far greater and far more diverse than engineering school actually teaches you. So don't close your mind off to the possibility of veering into different sectors of engineering and different applications of engineering. Don't think that you have to pigeonhole yourself into just specifically what you've studied. And at the time, I remember not believing him. <laughs> I remember thinking, I know what I want to do. I've known what I wanted to do for a long time now. Um, so this is what I'm going to be doing in 10 years. And 10 years has passed since I graduated college, more or less. And I am not a bridge design engineer. I didn't even work in the design sector for the first five years after graduation. I worked on the contracting side of things. And for a short period of time, I felt like I had settled, that I had not pushed as hard as I could for my dreams, and I had not made it to the design sector, and maybe I never would. But after I was able to break myself from that mindset a little bit, I started to recognize how much 
valuable experience working in the field was giving me. There were times where I was asked to be acting foreman. There were times where I was the overall project manager for a job and took care of the financials and the budgeting, the scheduling, even assigning payroll to the proper job posts. And when I shifted into the design job that I have currently, still not working on bridges, still working on structures, I realized how much of a leg up I had on someone who would have just spent their entire career on the design path only. I know what it's like to have to retrofit. I know what it's like to have to issue a change order because you get out in the field and what you see in person is drastically different than what the plans actually showed you. I know what it's like to have to think on the fly and to have to use different motivators in order to make decisions that don't just center around, does it stand up? Is it, does it have enough capacity? I think that the bigger picture view that working in different parts of the industry can give you is to not end up in that pigeonhole that my professor was talking about. You have the versatility and the diversity to be able to shift from one part of the industry into another part of the industry. And if you can take off your tunnel vision goggles like I did, you can realize how enjoyable and how fulfilling those different parts of the industry can be outside of just what you always thought you wanted to do. If you're a few years in the industry or, or even older, um, I think we can all think back to someone who reached out to us, whether it was during college or in our, our young early years as a designer or in, in the field or in the engineering industry in general. And we think of someone who was trying to help us see past ourselves. And we all, of course, were young and knew everything and were invincible. If you could say anything to your younger self, what would you say? And it would be, listen to those people who are telling you to think bigger than what you currently have envisioned for yourself. It's just something that we all especially as engineers, we're so sure of ourselves. And most of the time we're smart and we often get in our own way by blocking out what other opportunities could be available to us. So I really appreciate you sharing that wisdom. Yeah, I also uh, definitely agree with that because like the typical path, you know, uh, building or bridges, but I also tell students that, hey, don't be afraid to get into construction because like you just said, construction is, I think one of the weakest things of new engineers that don't have any experience, they're designing things that they don't have that field experience and what goes on behind the scenes and who the stakeholders are for the building. You know, it's not just the structural engineer, it works for seismic and your calcs work. No, there's a lot of players, you know, in the whole building design industry, including the owners, what it's going to cost the owners or what the end product's going to look like. So getting that part of it, I think it's definitely advantageous. And I think students shouldn't really shy away from that. You know, when you tell them about construction, it's it's a great field to start getting into because now, you know, I say it's the other half of the puzzle. Yeah, you know, the engineering, but what about the construction? That's a big weakness. And putting that as part of your career path, I think that's a, a great way to do it. It's an important part to uh, the early development of your career and that it's a, a crucial time window where you're still green, you still know that you have a lot to learn, and you're still willing to listen to the advice of years and years of experience. Not to say that people who have been in the industry for 10 plus years are much, much less likely to uh, learn from their superiors, but I do feel like when you're first out of college, you are so incredibly green that you're like a sponge and you want to take everything in. So if you can take in a good amount of that construction and contracting side of things, I think it will only make you stronger in the industry. There's maybe some college students who are listening who are thinking about summer internships, and you may kind of groan at the idea of uh, your first internship or even your second being with your local DOT or being with a contractor. And I think 
that aspect of constructability, some of the things that I have seen others, whether in an engineering firm or outside of it, comment about engineers they find the most technically strong as well as just the best problem solvers is that they've had some experience in constructability. They've learned from inspectors. They've listened to the people in the field who are doing it because you've given us such colorful examples. You can have a plan set that says one thing and what's on the field, what's on the job site is something entirely different. And the contractor can't magically make what's on your plan set come to life if it isn't something that's reasonable or viable. As much as we would love that, that normally is not the case. You're right. Are there any personal challenges that you've experienced in your career? Um, What are some of the experiences that this has taught you? And what would you share with younger Missy? When you're looking at just the work itself and the difficulty and the complexity of the work, I think that something I touched on earlier in the interview and something that I just want to reiterate is uh, plans when they do not match existing conditions. Retrofitting is a nightmare. Um, That is one of the biggest challenges that I think I ran into in the actual execution of the work and the design of these barrier cable systems. So when you're looking at just what you need to do to get a paycheck at the end of the day, I think that was by far the most difficult part. But when you look into everything else that plays into being a young engineer, being a female engineer, or having the unique uh, perspective of being both, I think that gaining respect is one of the hardest parts while maintaining respect for others. I think that I ran into the issue over and over again of um, being underestimated and being brushed off by uh, both general contractors and other engineers that I was working with in the start of my career. And uh, some of it took eating some crow and learning some hard lessons when I decided to put my foot down and put it down a little bit too hard because I felt like people weren't listening to the little five foot two blonde girl. But I did learn those lessons and I did learn how to be more respectful and calmer and more rational in my approach to uh, conflicts and confrontational type situations. So I think that if I could give any advice to younger Missy, it would be to calm down, to slow down how quickly you talk (laughs) and to always try to remember and defer to the experience of others, because people who have been in the industry for multiple times more than you have, even if it hasn't been in your exact position, you have something to learn from them. And don't discount that just because you think you're right in the moment. Missy, I have one last critical question for you. Your bio said that one of your hobbies is fire breathing. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? I spent roughly five years after I graduated throwing myself headfirst into my career and uh, it was all work and mostly no play. Now that I feel like I have established myself a bit with my uh, knowledge and experience in the industry, I decided to start having a little fun. Uh, So it started with uh, learning how to hula hoop and then it extended to setting my hula hoop on fire and spinning it in a fire circle at events all through the DFW area. And finally, I did decide to become a fire breather. It is one of my favorite pastimes by far, but uh, kids do not try this at home. Find a proper instructor. Also, if you want to do something different and quirky and honestly pretty badass, you should go out and do those things and wrap your arms around it and take it by the horns. I love it. Live your best life. Live your best life. Exactly. I think it's important that we remember that structural engineers are people too, and that we're not all work and no play. And we get wild and we can do pretty amazing things outside our personal time. I couldn't agree more. Missy, thanks so much for coming on and uh, sharing such these great insights with us. I know some of this stuff has really helped our listeners because 
with the barrier cables and the non-traditional career paths, uh, seeing how you can be successful in those. Where can our listeners connect with you? I have an account on LinkedIn, so please feel free to professionally connect with me there, uh, Missy McMullen. And um, if you're more interested in my um, free time and my nightlife and all of the fire stuff, my Instagram is at Miss Hoopaholic. Yes, we'll definitely put those in the links below too. So thanks again, Missy, for coming on. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was a blast. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 31, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to check out EMI's newest podcast, the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, which can be found at geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com. And make sure to refer it to your geotechnical colleagues as well. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.